John, we were in the Gospel of John. Do you guys remember that? Anyone remember that? We kind of were. Now we're kind of not, which very much fits my personality, which might drive some of you crazy. But what I kind of have, have gleaned in talking to the staff and just some of our thoughts this way, what we'd like to do is just, we got to chapter 15, which basically sets us up for the last bit of last, in some sense, chapter of Jesus's life, John 15 through 21. And what we're going to do is we're going to wait till January and kind of package that up um, as a run up to Easter. And so that we can kind of go through it in depth, bit by bit, kind of as a run up to Easter and really focus on the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, and, And then we just got different things that we feel burdened to talk about or address uh, and then we've got some amazing guest speakers coming this summer and then early fall. And so we just seem, uh, it just seems best to us to kind of put that to January. So what we're going to do starting today is start a, a series called After You Believe. Real creative title, right? I didn't think of it. I stole it. It's uh, a new book by N.T. Wright. It's called After You Believe. And I just thought, you know what? I really like how, how simple that title is. And so we've got four weeks and the series is going to be called After You Believe. And then each week... The title of the message is taken from a book that's kind of been transformative in my spiritual walk. And uh, so today it's Spiritual Theology, which was a book I read in seminary, which really helped me understand that we become what we behold. That theology is something that ought to be transformational, that when we see God, um, if we see him rightly, we see him correctly, that has everything to do with the transformation of our own hearts and our own souls, our own spiritual growth that it's not an objective thing that we just study. And so we're going to kind of launch into that today. We've got, just because they're fun titles, uh, we've got a, a sermon called The Joy of Being Wrong. It's not a confession. It's the title of a book. Uh, the, uh, the Dark Night of the, uh, the Soul, we're just going to call that The Dark Night, and then Fear and Trembling, which is the title of Kierkegaard's book um, talking about faith in Abraham. So the purpose, if, if you will, of this, we just kind of came out of that whole series on Give Your Life Away. Um, and I think it, there's a lot of questions out there. So we're getting hit from every direction with people really asking this question, now what? And I'm beginning to realize that's a really cool thing because what it shows is that, that you or people or someone sitting next to you, that, that there's a kind of a stirring, that there's a desire, that there's a hunger, that there's a willingness, that there's an openness. And, and that question, now what, I think it's an amazing question, and we see it all throughout the New Testament. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, these people came back to Peter after he was preaching and said, so what should we do? Now what should we do? And Jesus, when he encountered people like the woman at the well and things like that, would go run away and tell people and come back to hear more and kind of with this real now what kind of uh, attitude. And so um, I think it's a really good place for us to be at as a church. But so what we want to do in this, the next four weeks is really talk about discipleship really want to talk about spirituality, really want to talk about our own growth and what that really looks like and, and how we can, in some sense, prioritize that. Um, I was sitting there during worship, and I had this thought. I've, I, I've always thought Christians were weird. I mean, I always have, and so I always wanted to like separate myself from the weird, weirdness of Christianity and, and be in a subgroup called Unweird Christianity. And what I've realized literally over the last year probably is that there is no part of Christianity that's not weird. Like there's uh, essential weirdness, so now I've, I've defined it even further. There's, 
weird things that, that are necessary and then weird things that aren't necessary. I've, I was meeting for lunch with Francis Chan about a year and a half ago, and he was telling a story of, of a girl in one of his college classes that also went to the community college. And she came to him and said, you know, everybody thinks uh, I'm annoying because I'm a Christian. And his response was, no, everyone thinks you're annoying because you're annoying. You know, um, even Christians think you're annoying, you know. And, and so there's, there's a weird kind of Christianity that's non-essential. It's just, it's kind of weird. And then there's essential weird Christianity. And so we're singing hymns that talk about standing beneath the flood of Jesus' blood or beneath the flow. It's weird. It, it's weird. Uh, I have atheists that try to make fun of me about worshiping a, a zombie Jew, which is, a, which is a really interesting way of packaging um, Jesus, you know. Uh, but I, I do say Jesus was the Son of God. Yeah, it's weird. Um, it's, there's weird parts of Christianity. He was a lamb that died for my sins that, that I can live. And we just got off of a whole series that says, um, here's a really good idea. I mean, a real great self-help principle that will really maximize your life, your best life now. <laughs> there's irony in that if you don't know it. Um, it's give your life away. That's weird. And, I mean, go try it on somebody. Just on the street. Hey, I got a really good idea for you. If you want to find your life, lose it. Go sell everything. Go wrap up who you are, what you're about. You know, cut off the things that aren't essential and go give your life away to others. Um, go give your life away in service as a way of honoring God, as a way of being with God because that's what God's about is is going into the cracks and the margins of this world and helping the most vulnerable and, and listening to the cries of the people that are really in some sense oppressed and needy. Like, so go join that movement. Um, even say it to Christians that are in the church and they'll think you're weird. It's, you know, I, I was asked by um, someone in World Relief once, like, hey, does, is, you know, are your, guy, your elders cool with your church always giving so much stuff away? And it was a guy in, in Darfur, and I'm, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm emailing him, and he's emailing me from Darfur, and we're just having this conversation. It's really interesting. And I just emailed back a quote, and I said, it's a Bonhoeffer quote. And Bonhoeffer said this, the church is only the church when it exists for others. The church is only the church when it exists for others. Here's another quote. I forget who it comes from, but it basically says, the church is the only institution in, in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church is the, is the only institution in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Okay, why do I not want to ever spend Antioch money on buildings? Because there's something really, unless God absolutely made it clear to all of us that that's what we were supposed to do because it was best for others, we wouldn't do it. Um, there'd be creative ways we could do it or, or whatever or God would really have to move and we'd all have to see it but we never want to spend money on buildings that way and multiply those things because our whole function, our identity is such that we exist for the benefit of the non-members, not the members. We're not a country club. We don't just continue to build gardens and it says in Deuteronomy that when a king takes over in Israel of course, Solomon, David kind of didn't listen to it, and Solomon really didn't listen to it. But it says a king, when he, when he comes into power, he's not supposed to multiply horses, 
And he's not supposed to multiply wives, which is money and sex, to put it bluntly. You're not supposed to use your power position to maximize your pleasure and your comfort in life. Well, when we're in a church and we come together, whatever resources, whatever power, whatever influence we have, whatever capacity we have is not supposed to multiply horses or multiply like sitting rooms that are comfortable. And I mean, it, that, that capacity is given to us as the body of Christ to go do with it what the body of Christ did when he, when he was here, when Christ was actually here. We're supposed to, in some sense, follow that out. And so, um, so we exist for our non-members. Go try and tell Christians, give your life away. And you'll kind of see how they get uncomfortable. This is a really awkward, illogical thing that we talked about, giving your life away. And so it really stirs something and says, okay, what, is, what, do we, what do we do with that? Like, where do we go with that? How do we live that out? How do we break that down into baby steps? How do I slowly talk to God about that? Because in some sense, it sounds really overwhelming, and it is really overwhelming. And so this kind of after you believe kind of series is really trying to just wrestle with what does this conversation look like with God? What does it look like internally? What does it look like to surrender ourselves um, to really being transformed and remade into the image of Christ? There was a debate going on when, in the 90s when I was in seminary, and, and I didn't land 100% on one side or the other, but it was like two seminaries. This is really one of the weird, non-essential weird things about Christianity. Is like, two schools fighting with each other over like a theological point that's like 10 layers removed from what anybody on the street would even be thinking or asking about God. Okay, so that's a non-essential weird point would be arguing about stupid stuff. Okay. Um, but I did disagree with one thing on one of those schools. Uh, and it, was, it was this bifurcation, this putting a, a, a divide that there's Christian and then there's disciple like super Christian, uber Christian, Christian that gets to wear Christian t-shirts, you know, like, and I, I, I mean, I've searched the New Testament and I see nothing in the New Testament that says there's these complicated layering systems. It's, I see death to life. I see having the law not written on tablets of stone, but written on your heart. I see Jesus talking about being born again, I, I see him saying, take up your cross and follow me, and you know, the rest kind of works itself out. I, I, I see a call to obedience, a call to discipleship, not this kind of, um, these different options. I'll take Christianity. I'll take Christianity with the cherry on top, you know, and I'll pay more for it. You know, like, I, and, uh, and I think what we're really trying to wrestle here with is that in the church, in the American church, whether we've intentionally done it or not, we've communicated that there's, that you're safe. You're, you're a good boy or a good girl if, if you're, you're sitting here. If you've just cho- chosen to kind of say that you're a Christian, if, you're, if you've just chosen to kind of um, check a checkbox and say you've, uh, you've said a prayer or you've, you've in some sense made a, a vow to kind of um, make this your religion that, that that's, that's okay. And that's, we're super excited about that as long as you tithe. Um, and, and, and that's, 
and then you can just hang out there for the next 60 years. As long as you don't do a couple taboo things that we've got rules for, um, you know, you probably know what they are, you know, as long as you don't do a couple of these things, then you can just hang out there the next 60 years, 30 years, whatever. Um, I, I just think if Jesus were to come preach every week, that group in this church or any church would begin to quickly shrink week by week. And you'd, you'd either leave altogether or you'd leave and go find a church that was a little bit easier to enjoy. Um, that's hard for me to say. Uh, Jesus wouldn't be happy putting band-aids on, on deep spiritual problems. He wouldn't be happy um, giving you placebos. He wouldn't be happy just making small talk with you. He... <laughs> He wouldn't be happy if you just approved of him and he had a good job approval rating and, and whatever. Uh, he is, is and was only concerned with one thing and that's, that's the core of who you are, your heart. That you, desperately in need without him, would allow him to come into your life and be in relationship with you and lead you where you have to radically obey and radically follow and radically surrender and, and be willing to endure discomfort for his name's sake. But that in that whole process, you would grow and you would change and you would mature. So what we've essentially done in American Christianity is we've taken any kind of education out of it. Why do we not care about Kilns College? I'll be honest with you. Nobody cares about the college except for like 10 people in this church. It is not sexy. It is not attractive. It is not the thing that we lay awake in bed, you know, going, you know, that's uber cool. Um, we don't see a kid with a fly in his eye and, and immediately get filled with compassion and then say, ooh, Kiln's College is amazing. Like, it is not sexy. And it doesn't have to be, but... Do you understand? We, we've stopped caring about education because we've stopped caring about maturity and therefore any kind of an institution or structure like the college which is aimed at education, therefore the flourishing of the soul, maturity, your growth, spiritual growth is irrelevant. It's not necessary. No one's going around saying I need that apparatus because education is really important because maturity is necessary. I need it. I need to think about these things. I need to learn about these things. I need to grow in my knowledge. It's, it's, we used to sing when I was a college pastor. At the end of every, every Sunday, we would hold hands, which is probably not, not an essential weird part. It's probably a non-essential weird part of Christianity. But we'd hold hands anyways. Um, and we'd sing this song. It was basically taken out of Peter where it says, Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To, him be the, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like, how are we going to glorify God, honor God, respect God, magnify God, please God? It's that we grow in the grace, which is the thing that forgives us, accepts us, transforms us, and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, go and make disciples by getting them to say sinner's prayers or making confessions. No, by teaching them everything that I've commanded, by baptizing them and teaching them everything that I've commanded. It's discipleship. It's, it's long-term, difficult, hard maturation. Now, we all have to mature when we have parents, right? Because they force us to it. 
When you get to this age, though, nobody really can force you to grow. No one can really force you to be educated and mature. You have to want it. You have to desire it. So we're talking about giving your life away. And after you believe, one of the things we just got to realize is it's spiritual theology. It's spiritual growth. It's a commitment. It's obedience. It's radical. It's a desire for discipleship. Um, so let's pray. And then I uh, just got a couple, three points that I want to talk about some verses I want to look at, but I just hope that you would resonate with this, that I can't remember what I once said, uh, like remembering a vague snippet of a sermon like two years ago, but it was, it was something to the effect of demand, demand more for me. Like if I, don't, if I don't preach so that it makes sense with what, it harmonizes with what, with what Jesus says, so that it explains, so that it applies what Jesus said, if, if we're not preaching as a church up front something that matches that, leave this church. Don't settle for just a good experience or enjoying Sunday morning or coming here because you want your kids to get a spiritual education because frankly, one hour on Sundays is going to do nothing. It's what really happens in your home that's going to matter. It's the example that you're setting. It's the transformation in your life that's really going to give your kids a spiritual education. Don't don't come here if we don't match what, what true Christianity is really supposed to look like. Um, let's pray. Father, as we head into this series, um, just may it reflect your heart, may it reflect your, your thoughts and your words for your children. I, I pray that you'd correct any errors, that you'd steer it straight. I pray that you'd give this church a desire and a hunger for so much more that we would risk life if, if need be, that we would prioritize the disenfranchised and the other, the ones that don't have a vote, the ones that don't have a voice, and that we wouldn't use our power or our vote to just add comfort upon comfort, to multiply our horses. I pray that you would be honored in this place. In Christ's name, amen. Um, there's a... A passage in Second Chronicles, put it on the screen here. It's an interesting passage. It's uh, Hezekiah, as a king of Israel, kind of comes along and, and has to try and restore. Like, there's not even enough priests that are consecrated to like, hold the, the annual festivals. And he has to repurify the temple. And so Hezekiah like, has to come in and he has to wipe off all the, all the grime and try and bring this whole political group, this whole ethnic group, this whole people group back to these core principles of, of who they are, their identity. They've forgotten their identity. And so he's, you know, trying to bring them back, which is a real paradigm shift for these people. And he's laboring over all these things and he purifies the temple. He calls them back to the Passover meal, which God had said, do this in remembrance of me. If they're not doing it, what does it say? It says in some sense there's a distance between them and God. There's a, they've forgotten. They no longer know. They've, they've in some sense turned their face away and their, their attention, their gaze, their focus is on other things other than God. Do, do you get that? So Hezekiah is 
calling everybody back and he, he sends this letter. So he writes a letter and then sends it out to everybody as part of this calling, calling people back. And in verse 9 of chapter 30, we'll just read the last little bit of his little letter. It says this, if you return to the Lord, okay, you've wandered, you've gone astray. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land for the Lord your God is gracious, gracious and compassionate. Now, now listen to this sentence here. He will not turn his face. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. There, this passage for me captures a motif that you see all, through, all throughout Scripture that if we return to God, he is quick to compassion, quick to forgive. In, in 1 John, it says, confess, and God will forgive. And in Jeremiah, I quote this a lot, Jeremiah and James, it says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And Jesus says, if you seek, then you will find. And Jesus, later in the book of Revelation, writes a letter to a church and says, you guys are having a club meeting behind closed doors, and you, you have no idea where I am or anything about me and how that would relate to your little club meeting. Open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door and I'll come into that meeting and I'll purify that meeting and I'll cleanse that meeting and I'll, I'll, I'll bring the paradigm shift. I'll bring the real change. And, and we see over and over and over again, Jesus even walks up to Jerusalem and says, and he cries over Jerusalem and he says, man, you guys are like little chicks and I'm like the mother hen and I just wish I could gather you up in my wings and protect you and love you and nurture you and if you only knew who I was, if you would only come to me, if you'd only turn to me, if you'd only not look away, reject or forget. And so we see in scripture over and over and over again that, that in this relationship, like the Garden of Eden or, or again, wherever you want to look, it is, it is we who turn our face away from God. And that if we return to God, if we look back to God, if we surrender, if we uh, ask forgiveness, if we humble ourselves, God is always quick and eager and desirous to, to lift us up and to bring us in and to restore us. My daughters are at that age where I, I feel like I'm redirecting a lot, you know, like just, just redirecting a lot. But the interesting thing is, is no matter what they do wrong or half wrong or whatever, uh, if they really honestly stop and look back to me or say they're sorry or, or connect with me or understand or humble, I, it's, it's like immediate harmony in my life. It's, it's, it's like this amazing place in that relationship where everything just went away. Everything's washed away and it's, it's right there again. It's the same with God. God is, is all the best qualities of a father. I understand some of you might have bad dads, but um, if you can project onto God what a good father would look like, it's that ability to, when we turn back to him, embrace that. Jesus uses a metaphor of a shepherd with sheep to talk about how sheep get lost and sheep wander, but the good shepherd seeks he cares more about the one lost one than he does the 99 that are found and comfortable, okay? Uh, the parable of the, of the prodigal son really is a parable of God with us, that, that we're wandering 
and we're lost. And then we realize, you know what? This, this life sucks. A life apart from God, it sucks. I don't want this life. I wasn't made for this life. There's nothing about this life that's filling. And we, we turn back and we go home again thinking, maybe I'll just humble myself and at least like I'll be a hired hand. And when we get to the end of the driveway, the, the, the patriarch who never runs in public, who who is, is the, the top position in terms of honor, who never belittles himself, pulls up his, his robes and runs to the end of that driveway and throws his arms around us and restores us immediately to, to the position of son or daughter. Okay. Do, you get, do you get that God will not turn his face away from us? That, to me, has to be the foundational piece of discipleship. At least for me, it has to be the foundational piece of discipleship that you can come boldly before the throne of God, that you can speak to your heavenly father, that your heavenly father will listen to you, that your heavenly father will accept you and forgive you and grace you, that wherever you are, no matter how messy you are, no matter how ashamed you are, you can come right there and, and that face will not look away from you. That whatever awkwardness there is, is on your side. Things you haven't asked forgiveness from, things you're ashamed of, things that you really do need to talk about with God. You, we know when it's hard to look someone in the eyes, it's usually because you just slandered them at lunchtime and now you're like, oh, this is awkward, they don't know, you know? Or you just did something or you're hiding something or you, you know, you know what I'm saying? You know when it, you can't look somebody in the eye. And if we're going to have a relationship with God, it's that stuff on our side that has to change. God is a rock. God is a pillar of love. God is there for you. And if we're going to talk maturity, discipleship, education, growth, it's you changing. It's us changing. It's this being renewed. It's us becoming comfortable and building this relationship. It's not like what most of our prayers say. God, come do this. God, come do that. God, I need you to ride in on a big horse. God, I need you to prove yourself by God, God, God. It's, it begins on this side of the relationship. We're the ones that are sick. He's the doctor. It's not we're... My little bubble is okay. God's got to prove himself out there in my circumstances through money, job, health, relationships, whatever it is. Um, so to me, this, it seems subtle, it seems slight, but God is looking at you. He wants to look at you. He's not going to turn his face away if you really want to be there. I was reading a book and it had an interesting thing and then all of a sudden it like jogged something in, in my mind, but how do we learn how to behave? I mean, just when you break it down to the, the essence of how we learn how to behave. The, the first category, uh, and this, this is kind of what I got from this book, is looking around and, and seeing what other people are doing. If you're new this morning, you kind of sat down and you looked around like, am I supposed to be filling something out or not? Um, am I supposed to stand now or not? Like, um, am I supposed to move in? No, the pastor didn't move in, so I don't have to. Um, you know what I'm saying? But you... you the most basic of how we learn how to act or behave or what to do is by looking around at, at the herd, the crowd. When something is really complex and we don't know what to do, we look for an expert. Is there a doctor on the plane? Is there a pilot on the plane? Um, you know what I'm saying? But we, we collectively look around for who is that one person 
that expert. Last week we had Don Golden here, who's an expert in relief and development, Christian relief and development. If you stayed for Redux, you, you were like, wow, um, radical paradigm shifts. I mean, just un- helping understand different things that way. But when we don't understand things and the herd doesn't understand things, then the herd will naturally look for a leader, for, for somebody that's an expert, somebody that can inform the rest of us. Okay, we do that in a good way during worship. So you might be like, why do we sing? Like, I'm not a big feeler. So half the time I'm just like, you know, (laughs) I'm not feeling it. Because worship, the way we do it here with music and instruments and things like that, really has to do with our emotions. And I end up looking around and I'm reminded, like, this isn't about me. This is a community thing. When we get to heaven, as a community of voices, we're going to worship God and say, holy, holy, holy. My relationship with God isn't just me and God. There's this component of us or we and God. And in some sense, I, I get to meld into that and I learn from that and I, I learn to this discipline of worship and this discipline of, of communal worship. And so this middle category, like in a, in a good way, it helps we look around and we learn what to do or we look around at how other parents are raising their kids to be godly kids and we learn from that. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Um, there's, a, there's the crowd. We benefit from that. We look around at examples, Dylan and Sherry Harris, um, others, Matt Smith, you know, I mean, there's, there's different people you look at and you learn from them because in some sense they're a notch above and you can see things in their life that, that you, you take away as an example. But then there's this other category. This book didn't know anything about this category. But this category here is when even the expert doesn't know what the right thing to do is or can't inform you on what you should do. And that category is prayer. It's... It's seeking God and listening to God and trying to discern God, even if it's radically incoherent, radically counterintuitive, radically upside down, if you will make it clear enough to me what to do, how to act, where to put my feet, like how to, how to step, I'll do that. You know more than the, the, the herd does. You know more than the expert does. You know, the experts do and you know, you alone know the real things that I ought to do. You have opinions on those things. And so I am going to daily sit here and listen and wrestle and try to understand and try to hear because this matters more than anything else. Do you know what would keep us from being in this category day and night wrestling in prayer? That we have not yet made a commitment to obey, radically obey whatever it is we hear. If we are not 100% all in, then we don't really want to know what God thinks about things. We just want help with the plans that we've already got laid out. So what keeps us from prayer that we've never really committed to follow Christ? What keeps us from prayer, assuming that, that heard prayer, group prayer, Let's hold hands, pray for the guy on your left, pray for the guy on your right, Aunt Mildred's toe, Uncle Larry's ankle, like whatever the laundry list of silly stuff is that we come up. What keeps us from real prayer sometimes is fake prayer. 
It's, it's just being a part of the herd, but never really going to God, looking God in the face, saying, I'm naked before you. I'm laid bare before you. You know it all in, in this conversation, I really desire to, to grow to the next place, to, to know what the next thing is to do. I, uh, this is going to sound really bad. I don't normally talk about this, but when I was a pastor in California, I did a prayer fast. You're not supposed to do that as pastors. Um, and here, here's how it happened. I was, I was in In-N-Out, and I'm a real, uh, Tamara married me despite my manners. My mom always told me I had really bad manners and no girl would ever want to marry me. I always blamed it on, I, I learned how to eat when I was in Holland and the, the Dutch just don't have manners. I don't even know if that's true, but I, I was like, I hid behind that. And I, I thought my mom didn't know what she was talking about. And then I started dating Tamara and I was absolutely shocked when she finally said to me like, your manners are really embarrassing. And I was like, I was like Really? Like, really? Like, I, I really, really? Um, but I, I'm kind of a slob that way. And so, you know, six years of undergrad in a fraternity, like learning how to eat, you know, you just, you don't talk. You just put your face down. The closer your face gets to the food, the more efficient it is, you know? <laughs> and so I'm at In-N-Out, and I love, I love In-N-Out. Um, if you guys have never migrated down to California, had In-N-Out, you don't know what you're missing. But I love In-N-Out, and I was... I had a bunch of fries in my mouth and then I saw somebody from the church like across the way and I was like, oh. So I kind of like clamped down on all the fries and I like, I prayed real quick and then I was like, okay, cool. I'm good now. Um, and then I just kept eating and I was like, wait a second. I don't even pray like that when I'm eating by myself at home. When I'm eating by myself, I have a rule that God, God knows I'm thankful and I can talk to him throughout the whole meal. And he'd rather I talk to him throughout the whole meal than just like for 10 seconds at the beginning. So, I mean, I'm sitting here in In-N-Out and I was like, when I'm by myself, like I, I pray a certain way. Now I'm in a restaurant and I, and I like formalize my prayer. Why? Because people might be looking. And all of a sudden I was just like, ooh, that's, that can't be good. And so I went back, I knew where to look and it's in the Sermon on the Mount and I went back and looked where Jesus talked about not praying to be seen by anybody. But when you pray, like slinker off, don't let anybody know and go get in your prayer closet and be just alone with God. And I thought, wow, like I've been trained by the herd to pray a certain way that really isn't prayer at all. So I I did this prayer fast thing. I was like, I'm not going to pray in any, any public places um, for like a set period of time. So my boss at that church really hated it. When it came time for the staff to pray, I would leave and I'd go get in my office by myself. And he really hated it. And we argued back and forth about the merits of my prayer fast and stuff like that. My, my prayer life absolutely radically changed. And I'm not even the same person because of it absolutely radically changed and I've never really broken that prayer fast. Um, It's actually a disadvantage to you, to the staff. I don't really pray in public. I find that it's an interruption to my real prayer. I'm too worried about what to say or or what you're hearing or that that if you need me to pray for you, I'm there. But but a formalized prayer, token prayer, just to do it, I'm going to go get by myself where it can be real. Um... And I can be transparent. And it's made all the difference in my life. It's, it's about being in this category with God and, 
and listening and being true and not hiding and not, not praying horizontally like, like we're kind of writing a bunch of things down on paper and then we're going to put it in a fire and that kind of like goes up to God then like incense. It's like, no, um, God's not going to turn his face away. God's face is there. I'm, I'm trying to honor that the best way I can to, to really wrestle in prayer. And prayer begins to look a lot different that way. It begins to look conversational. It begins to look like you're driving in your car. You're in the middle of a conversation with somebody else, but you're talking to God. It, it begins to be all pervasive. It's kind of like what Paul talks about when he says, pray without ceasing. And, and it begins to be about little things and little steps and, and how would you have me feel and how would you have me think and how would you have me spend my money and, and today, how, how would I spend my day? And, and, and everything begins to be a dialogue with God the way it is in a relationship with a best friend or with a spouse or with anybody else. You begin to process and dialogue about all things that are going on in your life. Everything begins to be a part of that. And it's so radically different from this prayer we just make a laundry list of needs. Hey, we're going to pray. Um, who has any prayer requests? Ten minutes later, we've created a list like this. And we haven't even centered ourselves on the idea that God is a big God. And he's the God who saves. And, and this list is probably not what he's most concerned about. And that the relationship needs to change in us on this side, not on the God side. And that we probably, as we're generating this list, need to try and listen and figure out, God, what's, what's your list for us? Not just a token list we're going to give to you and then we're going to have this kind of fatalistic thing. Well, it must not have been God's will. He didn't answer it. Or I wonder if God even answers prayer. And everything becomes about request. It's a request-driven relationship. What other relationships in your life are request-driven relationships? Um, there's a, a guy at Dutch Brothers that recognizes me all the time. That's a request-driven relationship in my life. Lately, I've been asking the elders for a lot of things. It's become a request-driven relationship. I'm just kidding. Um, what's a request? Someone shout out. What's a request-driven relationship in your life? If you still believe in Santa Claus, that would be one. Do you understand what I'm getting at? What's that? Yeah, your boss? A business? Yeah, you want to know a really good one that's dehumanizing? Anyone that's in a service job. We, we you know, hey, can you, this coffee's cold, can you take it back? Um, can you tell the cook that, you know what I mean? Like we... A service industry, hey, the toilet paper's out. Can you go fix that? You might want, might want to be aware of that. The toilet stopped up. It wasn't me, though. You know, like, um, it's a request-driven relationship. We've re reduced the God of the universe, the God who is there, the God who loves, the God who is so infinitely bigger than our circumstances, our problems, our comfort, our desires. We've reduced them down to a handmaid that we just lobby our requests at one direction often and feel really good. Why? Because we're doing the herd behavior. Or there might be a spiritual leader in the group that's informing this and we're making that person happy and we feel like we're being really spiritual. And do you see where religion gains its traction? There's such a difference between just religion 
with check boxes and routines and behaviors and habits, but devoid of this, this facial conversation. Jesus wouldn't promote religion if he was here week to week. We got to move fast because I'm, I'm going hopelessly over time here. Um, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It'll be on the screen too, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4. These are famous kind of verses and Paul's been talking about how we in some sense become blind to what's really going on. We're veiled, we don't really see it. And he says this in verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves. We're not the experts here. We don't preach ourselves. And then you're going to follow us like the Pharisees, like the scribes, like the religious leaders that Jesus talked against. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now listen to this verse. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow, that's a mouthful. Okay, God, his... I mean, he, he made light come out of darkness, right? By just words. He's, he's a big God that creates. He spoke into the void, into the vacuum in your heart, into the darkness in your heart, and made light come on. Okay? So he's saying he made his light shine in your hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, to understand God and his greatness and his glory and his love and and the desirability, the attractiveness of God, to, to be able to see that when the lights go on and then you see something else shining, those two things come together. Now I have the ability to see and the thing I'm seeing is attractive. Those two things go together. And the package of this attractive light of the knowledge of the glory of God is the face of Christ. We are supposed to look into the face of Christ and all of a sudden there's a connection there and we see something so attractive, not like, oh, that guy's a freak and I don't want to follow him. It would mean that everything in my life has to get really weird and I have to lose everything and, and, and it's hard and I don't want to obey him. I'm going to go be a Christian instead. It's, it's in the face of Christ that, that we see something attractive and, and desirable and that we want and that we need. And, and Jesus understands that. The problem we have is we don't understand that. And we have to spend time with him and we have to wrestle and we have to read scripture and we have to worship with other believers and we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to understand that there's something here we really want. You know, I look at Jesus' life and guess what? I want that. And then I immediately shrink back in fear. I want it because it would, I know that if I was like Christ, I would be a man. If you're a woman, there's, I mean, it holds true too. It's, it's the true qualities of what humanity and personhood is. It's what the hero in all the good hero movies exemplifies. A strength of character, a nobility of purpose, a, a, a trueness in desires and hungers and appetites and the ability to suffer well. I want that. I want you guys, this is, I, I mean, this, I can say this, right? To be able to look at me and see somebody that's 
that's just true that way. I want to be like Christ. I just don't know that I have the stomach for it. It is attractive. There's nothing I'm going to say. Like, I, you can't blind date Jesus, okay? There's nothing I could say that'd be like, he's really pretty, got a good personality. Like, you have to see that he is attractive for yourself. And then begin to wrestle like, I am weak. And then we say like the person that, that Jesus says, do you believe? And the person says, yes, I believe. <laughs> Help my unbelief. There's a part of me that's so rock solid, Christ, but there's another part of me that's so weak. And we know that in us, right? That we wrestle back and forth with ourselves. So we say, Jesus, I know you're so attractive. I know life would be better there. <sighs> I'm so weak. Here's the interesting thing is everyone I know would look at that character and be attracted to it. Everyone I know, I know this about Christ and I know this about everyone in my life that I've seen that's, that's, this, that's really far along that I look at as being Christ-like, that's a mentor to me. And the truth of this category is that they don't look there in envy the way that category looks at this and envies. You know, the only people that envy sinners are people over here that are, are caught in this tension. I want to be that, but I really want to be able to do that. The people that have let it all go and begin to understand the joy of this relationship, the sweetness of this relationship, just, just how complete you are over here. Our word is peace. The, the Hebrew word was shalom. The way it's supposed to be so rich, so full. These people don't envy sinners. When we grow, when we mature, when we become like this, um, it gets easier. The difficulty is over here. Um, all right, but here's what, last little thought on this verse. We'll move forward. There's a really interesting thing here. Um, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you know that we, both men and women, were made in the image of God? Have you ever wondered what that is? You know, maybe it's different than the animals. I can think better. I, I do art. You know, animals don't do art. You know, like, maybe that's the image of God. I mean, have you ever thought about that? It's the essence of who we were created to be. It's our identity. It's, 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 it's our stamp. It's a huge deal. It's huge. And what this passage is telling us is the answer to that, what the image of God is, the image of God is in the face of Christ. So I've always heard this verse talked about in terms of we can know a lot about God because of the face of Christ. But here's the interesting thing. We can also know a lot about ourselves. Because who we were created to be, what we were made to be, the image of God in us that was supposed to be dominant and make us human, make us, make us his, make us the creation that was good, that image, this is the full picture of it. Christianity without discipleship, Christianity without maturity, Christianity without education, Christianity without growth into what this is, really is some kind of a weird pseudo-cult. It's not really a part of anybody's plan that I see in Scripture. Um, we get to know 
God's plan for us in the face of Christ. God wants you to be a man. That desire you've always had to be a man, God wants that for you. It's in the face of Christ. A woman, and to have grace and nobility and um, beauty and, and all those kinds of things, whatever those virtues are, even the strength in that kind of a character, um, that's there. And those things that you've always aspired to are the things you're supposed to aspire to. It's a, we get to pursue what we've always wanted to be because what we've always really deep down wanted to be, even as kids, even reading the fairy tales, was what God created us to be. How is that going to all happen? God feeling this pleasure of his creation being what he designed and us finally kind of coming home to that place where we're like, man, I'm full, I'm complete. How is that going to happen? It starts with one radical commitment to obedience. God, I'll do whatever, whenever, wherever. And since that's pretty high in terms of stakes, I'm not going to listen to the crowd. I'm not going to listen to the herd boss me around and, and spiritually abuse me and control me. I am going to spend every waking minute I can with you with you looking me in my face and telling me what you desire for me, what you want me to do, I'm going to learn to listen to that, to hear it, to, to interact with it. But it all comes from one radical commitment to obedience. Um, we got to end because, I mean, I'm, I, I rambled on way too long today. Um, the... Uh, There's a, there's a book that you can buy out on the book table. By the way, two books on prayer that changed my life is Experiencing God Through Prayer, Madame Guyon, and Dallas Willard's Hearing God. Um, absolutely changed my prayer life. We have them out there. I'd commend them to you. If you care enough about this, care enough to research it. Um, there's a bunch of Andrew Murray books out there. Andrew Murray's another guy that's just changed my life with the simplicity of his words. He was, I think, a Scotsman, but he was a missionary in South Africa, born in South Africa, and then went back there in the 1800s. But listen to what he said. We have to learn, and we do learn gradually, is that the practice of obedience to new and ever more difficult commands, um, but as to the principle, Christ wants... I'm sorry, let me read it from the beginning. First, let me warn against misunderstanding the expression learning obedience. We are apt to think of absolute obedience as a principle, that obedience unto death is a a thing that can only be gradually learned in Christ's school. This is a great mistake. What we have to learn, and we do learn gradually, is the practice of obedience to new and ever more difficult commands. But as to the principle, Christ wants us from the very entrance into his school to vow complete obedience. A child of five can be as implicitly obedient as a youth of 18. The difference between the two lies not in the principle, but in the nature of the work demanded. Does that make sense? We start with this absolute commitment to obedience, but as we learn and as we grow, what that thing does and what it looks like and how how we understand it, what it leads to all changes as we mature. 
We don't learn the principle of absolute obedience. Absolute obedience starts the whole thing, but we mature and we grow in terms of what that is and the dy- dynamic that's worked out. Um, by the way, Andrew Murray's book's out there too. Um, so what I want to do this morning is just come back to, I've been thinking about this theme ever since I brought it up a bunch of weeks ago, but it's just been in my mind, this idea that some decisions affect every other decision. What you're going to have for lunch today probably doesn't affect every other decision. Who you're going to marry, whether or not you're going to choose Christianity, whether or not you're going to move, relocate, those are big decisions that affect thousands, if not millions of other decisions. Does that make sense? If you turn your car to the left, you might get in a car accident and kill somebody. That decision affects every other decision, but you didn't know about it. You couldn't have known. But there's some decisions that we know in advance, this decision has a lot riding on it. And that's why it says in scripture that you seek counsel and you seek advice. It also says in James that you ask God for wisdom. God going into this, it affects everything else. You gotta speak to me, you gotta lead me, you gotta inform this um, because I know that this is a huge deal. Well, I think we gotta come to Christianity this way and understand, look, It's not a million do's and don'ts, contrary to what you grew up thinking. It's not all these rules every day that tyrannize you. It's just one thing up front that we have to decide. Am I going to radically commit to obey Christ? Not one decision then governs every other decision. And things become really easy as we move towards this category. But it's this one thing. So I always used to go to church and I hated it when every sermon ended with kind of an emotive appeal to saying a prayer to, to say that you were going to be, become a Christian. And I've probably knee-jerked way to an extreme, and I'm sorry for that. Um, and, and I know a lot of people that have come to the Lord and have amazing lives because of that. But I think the truth is, is the call is a call to obedience. It's a call to discipleship. So what I'm going to ask this morning is that this whole Give Your Life Away series and then come into where we're at now, if there's anyone that's never committed 100%, just... God, I'll, I'll do whatever, whenever, wherever. I'm committing to obey. Now you got to help me because I got a lot of weakness and I'm scared to death, but I'm willing to walk forward and I'm willing to learn how to pray and how to listen. But if no one's ever committed themselves to truly being a Christian, to look like Christ, to be where Christ is, to follow Christ, if nobody's ever truly committed to discipleship, uh, I'm going to ask you just as I pray that, that you kind of revisit that and say, look, I don't want to be a cultural Christian. Uh, Christ, I really want to be where you're at. I want to be in conversation. I want to be in relationship. I don't want religion. I want so much more than that. I want the relationship. And as scared as I am, I'm willing to walk that way. Let's pray. Father, um, if there are people out here that you are shining your light into their, the darkness in the heart or the void or the confusion or the, the frustration or the fear, I just pray that, that we would know it, that I would know it, that others would know it that you really do assist us in a divine way, that that you really do make light shine in our hearts where there wasn't light before, to give us the ability to see you, to know you, to be attracted to you, to see the goodness, to desire that goodness, to, to want what we were made for, your image. Made in your image, we see the image of God in the face of Christ. We want to be with Christ. We want to be with you. We want to grow into it. Father, we want to be complete. We want to be whole. We want to be mature. We want to be stronger than we are. Give us the strength right now to make one decision that will affect all other decisions. To make one decision to radically 
choose to obey, to commit to obey, whatever, whenever, wherever. Father, just give us the ability to say yes because you're calling us to follow. Give us the ability to say yes, I will follow. Take this church, do radical things with this church. Don't ever let it become about something other than you. Father, we pray that you would purify it, discipline it if you need to, grow us, bring us together. But in all these things, may we truly be found in you, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.